This is CliffCentral.com. Professor Brian Cantor is the Emeritus Professor and Chief Investment Strategist and Economist for Investec Wealth and Investment. He has had a distinguished academic career at UCT, junior lecturer in 1964 to becoming Professor of Economics in 1981, and he served as Dean of the Faculty of Commerce between 1997 and 2001. He's written a number of excellent books, the first of which was Understanding Capitalism, How Economies Work. That was back in 1995. And his latest book, Get South Africa Growing, only three years ago, 2017. Prof, it's a great pleasure to speak to you. How are you, first of all? Good, thank you. And these two engage. Yeah, and no coronavirus in your household, I should hope. No, uh, no. Fortunately not, so we are a vulnerable, I am of a vulnerable age. Yes, yes, and I will continue to be uh, cautious. Okay, good. So, I think the right, um, the right uh, attitude to have. I mean, people, people are responsible normally, and um, I'll be responsible, as I think many older people uh, should be and, and would have been in any event. So... I uh, I think a lot about lockdown when one can't help but think about it, and um, my in, my growing conviction, and time will tell us it always does, is that it's uh, been a terrible mistake. So why do you think lockdown has been a, pr- a mistake, Professor? Well, it's enormously expensive. I mean, I I don't know that people when when they contemplated lockdown any good idea of just how costly it would be to the economy at large, and how damaging it would be to particular um, participants in, in in the economy, particularly people, poor people, who depend on wage income to survive. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the aggregate expense is, is enormous. It's, it's, it's sacrificed output and income. The order now it seems to be... Uh, the economy in the second quarter around the world will produce about 16% less than it produced a, a year ago. Now, when you add up those numbers, they are enormous. I mean, in South Africa's case, I did a pull the back of the envelope calculation. I think we would we would lose about a trillion rand of output and income. That's going to be an ongoing issue. I mean, yes, when will we get back? To something like normal, will we ever get back to the path of economic um, development, the path of growth that uh, we were on? And that's that's not only true of South Africa, too generally. And our and our path wasn't a very steep one, alas. Mm. So, well, now the numbers also. I mean, there are some some very important um, numbers, and people disagree about them. The numbers for South Africa are not that um, serious, I would say. I mean, this is something, yes, there are 10,000 cases, there are 200 or so deaths. Those are terrible. But those are not, um, those are not the kinds of catastrophe that you would, would justify the, the loss of incomes and the consequences, the, the collateral damage. Mm. Professor, uh, there's a there's a sort of a false equivalence that's being brought up in the media about precisely the thing you've just mentioned that that you know people who are interested in the economy working are somehow not interested in saving human lives and that people who are saving lives shouldn't be interested in the economy. This is nonsense because people's 
lives mean their livelihoods, their ability to feed their families, their ability, ability to earn a living wage. These are all very important factors for people and sometimes outweigh the danger and the risk of COVID for some people, particularly young, fit, healthy people who are not as proportionately at risk as older people with comorbidities. Yes, that is that is true. But I mean, society faces these risks continuously and risks of, of, of disease and, and another. And uh, this is unfortunate reality of, of life that uh, you are you are vulnerable. And old people are particularly vulnerable. And uh, one has to be realistic and sensible about what you can do about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that uh, we have been sensible and realistic. The, the, the fear factor just, just took over. And um, fear is a, is a, t- a terrible uh, guide to, to action. Uh, the uh, fear, fear of, of nasty disease is, a, is, a, is, is fearful. Mm. And uh, I think the politicians, um, I'm afraid, uh, could not withstand. The, the, the fear and the implications of that, of that fear. But they couldn't be seen to be doing uh, nothing, as perhaps they're doing nothing in, in Brazil. Yeah, but, but Prof, now that we have more information at hand and we are discovering more about this virus and also the reactions of governments around the world to this virus, there is new information. Do you think that governments are caught in the same trap of, of so many people who have a sunken cost almost in their decision that they're not prepared to change tack halfway through, even when better information arises? No, I think it's hard to change tack and it's hard to accept responsibility for something that perhaps if you, if you knew what you know now, you wouldn't have done. But uh, one reality now is that you can't stay on lockdown. You've got to get people back, back to work because, because it's less true of the rich parts of the world, but it's much, much more important in, in the poorer parts of the world. If you, if you don't work, uh, then you won't eat. You won't have to put food on the table. And, and, and those people who do work and, and pay taxes to, to help put food on the, on the table for others, won't be working either. So the, the lockdowns cannot be sustained. Whatever whatever you argue about the necessity in the first place, a comprehensive lockdown of economies is not sustainable. So you've got to you've got to move on, and you've got to accept the risks that uh, there will be increased infections in the, in as they often are with with other diseases. But they will be increased. In- then we come back to the original premise of the lockdown, which is often not, well, is not emphasized. Why did we lock down? Because it was thought that hospital systems around the world and the NHS in particular, the, 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 you know, the British religion, the NHS, and, <laughs> and in America, in New, in New York, and therefore they needed to slow down the, uh, the exponential increasingly exponential growth in the number of people who would who would need to go to hospital well it turns out that uh, through great efforts and uh, important investment of resources and so forth that the hospital systems in britain and in america and in europe have coped they are ready to take on more more patients so if there is a secondary 
round of infections, the hospitals can treat the very seriously ill, of whom, in fact, they are relatively uh, few. 99.9% of the people who seem to get this awful disease uh, seem to recover. So, Prof... Um, so that was the premise. Well, that premise still holds. It, and, it, it uh, very much does. I'm, I'm curious, though, you hinted at something just now which we need to talk about a little bit because this is absolutely within your field of... Of, of interest and expertise. Governments all over the world are borrowing enormous quantities of money and parceling it out either to individuals in food parcels or in businesses to help relief packages. They're forcing banks to make loans in places that they might not have before and in some places obviously by the same rules that they used before. Um, what is this profusion of, in inverted commas, borrowed money going to do to the world economy? And, and long-term, what are the effects of this going to be on people, their children, in whose name they seem to be borrowing some of this, and their grandchildren even, if the amounts are significant enough? Well, you say I have some skills and experience in this. <laughs> that is where I do have some knowledge and some experience. Now, I am sympathetic, very sympathetic, to the government's helping people and, and businesses through this catastrophe, which, which is not of their making. So the governments come along and say, stop work, stop earning. In, in some cases, if you didn't help people, they, they would die of starvation, but you know, some people have reserves and richer people have reserves and, and they might be able to cope with a few, uh, they will be able to cope with a few, a few months even of no income. But, but poor people clearly cannot and would die. So, so you've got to help them. And now how do you help them? Well, governments can, can clearly uh, spend more and uh, they may have to raise debt to that purpose. But that, if you look around the world, in the developed world, Governments are borrowing at close to zero rates of interest. And in some cases, they're even borrowing at negative rates of interest. So, in fact, future taxpayers will have very very little interest to have to pay on that. So it won't be a huge burden hmm. on, on future generations. Governments in these circumstances need to be as magnanimous and as generous as they, as they can be to a fault. This is not a time for parsimony. It's a time for magnanimity. And the question is, what does it cost? Well, there's also another another part of this argument. Now, you, you've shut down output. You've shut down supply. You've also shut down demand. If people don't have income and aren't working, though that's not true of everywhere. Some people are working and earning at home quite effectively. If, if you have no incomes, well, of course, you... You nothing to spend. You don't have food now. You've got to you've got to either give incomes or you've got to give food. In some ways, it's administratively less complicated to just give people income. In in Britain, they've turned the tax system from a uh, receiver to a, to a to a giver. Hmm. And in South Africa, you would have thought that that organising food parcels would have been an essential component relief, but it hasn't been uh, all that effective by any account. So, so what do we do in South Africa? Is the question that I've been answering. We don't borrow at zero rates of interest. In fact, if we if we had to borrow for ten years or more, we're paying eight nine percent a year. And if you're borrowing a whole lot extra, doubling the amount we borrow because we're spending, or the deficit, say, is double what what it would have been, that's a lot of 
extra interest expense. So the answer for a, for South Africa, and, and I made this argument, is you borrow or you or you spend as cheaply as possible. And that means you print you print money. That's that's what South Africa needs to be doing. That is spending with with money. It's 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 not a usual recipe. It's usually a recipe for inflation. But in these in these circumstances, there's no danger of inflation because demand is so depressed. So print money, help the economy uh, fund its spending, its extra spending in as cheap a way as possible. And then when the economy is back to something like normal, with the help of the extra spending you help fund uh, cheaply, then you take the money away. Now, this is not an argument that, that seems to appeal to our reserve reserve bank. <laughs> when you look at the numbers for the first four months of this year to the end of April, we have not created any more money than we than we uh, created by the end of last year. So there's no money creation actually taking place or has taken place in South Africa. Whereas if you went to America, the money supply, the the uh, central bank money, the cash in the system, has increased by 40% over the last uh, four months. 40%. We're talking of a couple of trillion dollars of extra cash pumped into the economy to help uh, people get over this so, Prof, first, first, first of all, on that point, why do you think that the Reserve Bank is so resistant to, to printing more money? And, and second of all, do you think, as many people are starting to murmur, that there will be yet another interest rate cut and whether that will have the desired effect in place of printing more money? Well, firstly, there will be another interest rate cut. And I would hope that you'd get interest rates down at the short end. Remember the Bank rate, the repo rate, is very much the rate at which short-term borrowing and lending uh, takes place, mm-hmm. uh, including uh, bank overdrafts are linked to the repo rate. Now, the repo rate is around 4, 4, 4% at, at the moment. That should go down to 1% as soon as possible. So, in fact, if you get the repo rate down to 1% and, and associated borrowing costs are, are around 1% or 2%, or 2% and, and the government borrows... All it needs to borrow at 1% by borrowing, issuing short-term paper, treasury bills and the like, you, 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 you have a less of a burden on, on future generations. Mm-hmm. Now, you ask the question, why is there a reserve? Well, cent- central banks have a long-term mission, and um, the mission is to control inflation. And, and printing money is inflationary in normal circumstances. But these are very abnormal circumstances, and you've got to be able to change your mindset. And I worry, and I'm concerned that the mindset of the Reserve Bank is still one of inflation targeting. Well, I, I, I think that's close to, to ridiculous. The, the mindset should be, what can we do to avert this catastrophe, which has huge implications long-term for our economy and, in fact, for our, our politics as well. If our government messes this up and is seen to mess it up, I, um, the consequences of that, I, I think, are very, are very serious. Uh, what, what kind of forces uh, will be encouraged by that kind of uh, mess, of mess, m- messing up? And what can one can worry about? I mean, there's a, ra- there's a radical force out there that might well want to take advantage of, uh, of, of, of government failure. 
Now, what about the impact of all of this on smaller businesses? And we know what a proportion of the economy they make up. And we also know that there are many people who are dependent on the informal economy, which is perhaps a still greater part of what goes on in South Africa. And that's largely a cash economy, too. So it's much harder to track. But what impact does all of this, this, this restriction on free movement, the inability for some people to trade completely, uh, for, for some people to, to be trading in a restrictive manner, all of this must be affecting every one of those that I've just mentioned. Yes, yes, it destroys, it puts business uh, in grave danger. If you're, if you're running a business and, and you have no revenue for two or three years, well, you probably can't survive as, as a business. You can't meet your, your, your commitments. And so, yes, you might have to declare some kind of default. You may hope to be able to start up again because if, if you have some reserve or somebody prepared to provide you with the um, working capital you need to start up, but it's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing to happen to a, a small or medium or whatever business in which people have invested their livelihoods, their, 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 their capital, their, their efforts, their sweat. And blood over many years, and now and now you faced with a with a disaster. Now, you, know, you, you then you may say, well, the government can help. Yes, the, the government can help. The Reserve Bank can help by guaranteeing banks uh, that they won't lose too much on on new loans to these businesses. But you know, it's a it's a complex sort of response. And if you're a cash business and you're a sort of informal business and you've got no cash income, well. You've got again no 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 food to put on the on the table. It, it's the people depend on cash income as opposed to um, more formal business enterprise of one kind or another. They, they are in the the deepest difficulties. So you know when when one does that when one does that to people hard working enterprising usually capable people you know you bear a, you bear an awful responsibility. And uh, there again, we come back. Was was that was that was our responses uh, appropriate? Yes, we've saved. We've saved. A f- one shouldn't go and say that at all, and one shouldn't be accused making these points of being un- unsympathetic. But uh, you know, that's life, and that's economic life. Incidentally, there's a phrase we use sometimes in economics called "tough love." Sometimes you just got to be tough-minded. Because the alternatives are more are more ghastly than the, uh, the what you might propose, they are always trade offs. Economic life is full of trade offs, and doctors, incidentally, the medical profession knows all about. Yeah, they have to make life or death decisions every single day of their medical career. But then, Professor, do you think that? experts and consultants and people who hopped on board early to advise governments and were were called on to advise governments, do you think they have some responsibility if it turns out that lockdown was a very, very bad idea and that there is, as we have already spoken of, a huge amount of damage? Do you think they bear some responsibility and and does China bear some responsibility in all of this for, for whatever happened in those Wuhan laboratories and is this just us trying to find someone to blame, or is there potentially quite a lot that needs to be spoken about after this to try and make sure that we don't do it again? Well, that is right. We should learn from the experience, and even best intentions people, and when one presumes that everybody's well-intentioned, can make mistakes and uh, must, uh, if they have to, and if it 
proves to be the case, uh, own up to their mistakes and um, learn from the experience. Now, the one, uh, one lesson for me, and it seems an overwhelmingly important lesson, is that societies need a reserve of medical capacity, which is costly. And uh, you need to be able to deal with a, a pandemic should it, should it materialize. In other words, just, just as you have an army reserve, you, you, you need a medical reserve, a reserve of, of resources that you can call, call upon in an emergency, such that you do not have to damage your economy in the way. I think that's, that's, that's an important lesson. But again, it's expensive. I mean, uh, society, economies were not prepared for this. I think in some cases, in many cases, they've done a fantastic job in, in, in raising resources to meet the extra demand. So that's, uh, yes, we uh, learn. And epidemiologists, hmm. those who, who scared us so badly in the, in the first, in the, they raised the fear. Yeah. They, have, they have particular responses. And it's, you know, garbage in, gar- garbage out. <laughs> Prof, are there any of these wild theories that you've heard going around? You know, there are people who talk about that this is some sort of conspiracy. There are people who talk about how countries all over the world can't possibly have all made such stupid mistakes. There are people who talk about a um, purposeful and driven experiment to put uh, small businesses out of action. I mean, have you heard any of these things that you would give even the slightest bit of serious consideration to, or are all of them rubbish to you? Well, conspiracy theories, I tend to re- reject them out of hand. They can't be proven one way or the other. So one, one cannot take them seriously. I don't think there was any conspiracy. Uh, I don't think the Chinese conspired to damage the, uh, the American economy or the, or the Western world. No, they didn't conspire that way. Though I think they are, in a way... Um, to be held responsible mm. because they didn't, as we know, they didn't, in fact, deal with the original um, infections uh, timelessly. So f- forget the conspiracies. I I think it's it's fear. You know, it's, it's fear and probabilities are something that people have grave difficulties in coping. You'd say, you know, you go into the water at Muhlenberg and you have a one in a thousand chance of, of or one in a hundred thousand chance of, of being bitten by a shark. Mm-hmm. But if you hear about a shock anywhere in, in the neighborhood, you don't you don't go into the water. You have unnatural fear, and fear is a terrible uh, influence yeah. on action, rational action. And I think the politicians couldn't ignore and still can't ignore the fears of people that they get they're going to get uh, terribly sick and might die, which is true. But, I mean, the chances of, of, of death, as we know now, are, are really quite minimal. But certainly nothing that uh, politicians could, could ignore. Professor. So we had to fall into the same, same um, re- responses that, that other countries would. Uh, the Swedish example will, will, will be a, a lesson for all of us in, in yeah. due course. And uh, maybe we should have gone the sweet, Swedish way. We'll find out later who develops the herd immunities that the Swedes probably will get sooner than we do and the death rates will come down, as they have to do. But we cannot stay in lockdown and, and, and we, yeah. we cannot 
behave uh, what looks like so st- stupidly as we seem to be behaving now in terms of the restrictions of one kind or another that make no sense. Yeah, the, the you capricious can take exercise till nine o'clock, so everybody's doing exercise at the same time. And so yeah. on and so on. No, it's ridiculous. So, so governments, uh, the the hard the hard choices really politically now are to relieve the lockdown because there are people who think it's a, still think it's a good idea. I think it's again a sort of higher or middle income proposition. Mm. It's people who are not fearful of of, of putting food on on their table. That are, I think, still and fearful of getting ill. That are the main support for perpetuation of. Professor, what this is really a, a little bit of a predictive one, but but I'm curious to know who you think might be the winners when all of this is said and done. Who is going to capitalize on whatever is left of the old economy, and whatever the new economy looks like after this? Who do you think might be the the best position to take advantage of the changes that have occurred? And to and to get business up and running in whatever their particular sector might be. Do you have any yes, suggestions? Well, well, that's a challenge for every business. I mean, how do we, how do you adapt to? That's the genius in a way of, of business. Uh, you 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 are so strongly incentivized to to make the right changes, and uh, and there's so certain obvious uh, opportunities and online and, and video conferencing and. Working from home and all, all that, and I think if I were in the uh, restaurant business or in the cruise line business or the hotel business, I, I mean, real issue. I don't know. I don't know. I think you've you've been you've been hurt, maybe beyond easy recovery. That's those are harsh facts. So some, some businesses are going to be hurt more than, more than others, and some I think are long term value uh, damaged irre- irreparably. And again, I I feel bad about that. Through no fault of their own, businesses have lost and lost permanently. And, uh, that is tragic. I think it's 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 tragic. Well, and yes, life will survive. As I raised earlier, one one wonders how it affects the the politics of of South Africa. How do how will our democracy survive these events? I think that's something to to be concerned. About who the who the winners and losers within within the ANC, for example, mm. that's something I think we can worry about. Well, Professor, so when, when the government, yeah, there's a lot at stake. We hope that they do sensible things now and and explain it in a in a in a sensible, realistic way. That's the, you need you need some leadership here. Prof, it's always good to see you and good to talk to you. And thank you very much for, for helping us uh, figure out what seems to be uncharted territory ahead of us. Um, it's, it's very good to rely on your expertise and your advice during this time. And I hope that many people are thinking the same way you are in government and in business and making the requisite changes where they can. I certainly hope your words uh, reach the right ears too for those who have not changed their mind yet. And uh, let's get back to business. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is cliffcentral.com.